Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Allison Camerata. This is CNN Tonight. White House officials are worried, CNN has learned, about the trove of classified and top-secret materials found in former President Donald Trump's home. The Biden White House has been virtually silent publicly on the danger that those sensitive documents pose, but a senior administration member says that privately, officials are expressing deep concern about the material that Trump was trying to hang on to. And according to a source, U.S. intelligence officials are also worried about whether any of it puts their sources and methods at risk. We still do not know who had access to the classified materials in the basement of Mar-a-Lago. Even Trump's own lawyer cannot answer that question. And only one or two people had access to that room, to your knowledge? That's my understanding. I mean, I would have to check with, you know, the, the maintenance of that area. But my understanding is very small number of people that could get in there. Okay. Did the maintenance staff have access to that room? Did Trump's family have access? Did Rudy Giuliani? Trump's lawyer also tried to claim that getting into Mar-a-Lago is tough. ...is secure in and of itself. You know, just getting onto the compound is hard. Hey, but we have seen dignitaries and wedding parties that have been there. We've also seen friends of Donald Trump's who eat dinner there every week. How about the Chinese national who was convicted of trespassing there three years ago? Prosecutors suggested she could have been trying to spy on the U.S. and say she had a flash drive containing malware in her possession at the time, as well as a signal detector and four cell phones. Somehow she was able to bring all of that into the private club. There was also another Chinese national accused of trespassing at Mar-a-Lago later that year. So taking classified documents from the White House is a crime. It may be many crimes as spelled out in the application for the search warrant. According to that document, the specific crimes being investigated include, quote, willful retention of national defense information. We know the National Archives and the DOJ tried to get those classified documents back for more than a year. According to three of Trump's advisors, as quoted in the New York Times, when asked to return the classified documents, Trump said, quote, they're mine. The ex-president often claims that things belong that actually belong to the American people are his. I want my generals kicking ass. All I can do is ask my generals. I authorize my military. My people are not shy. My people are so smart. In my Justice Department. I want my farmers. I love my farmers. Oh, look at my African-American over here. 18 top Trump administration officials are pushing back on the former president's claim that he had a standing order to declassify whatever top secret documents he wanted. Among them former acting Trump White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, who I spoke with a short time ago. Thanks so much for being here, Mick. Allison, thanks for having me. So, Mick, are you worried about the 20-plus boxes of classified material that was sitting in Donald Trump's basement and who might have seen it? Worried? Uh, not worried. I'm curious. Um, I saw the list that uh, of things that were moved uh, from Mar-a-Lago, and the one thing that caught my attention, along with, I think, the attention of most people, was that one 
or uh, that one list and said there were various items that were marked TSSCI. Allison, that's that's the serious stuff. That's top secret and compartmentalized information. That's that's not supposed to be there. Now, that being said, it's really hard to sort of understand how it gets there in the first place. These things are not sort of accidentally moved anywhere. These documents are marked. They are clearly uh, known to folks to be TSSCI, and they're supposed to be folks sort of tracking where they are. So the fact that that document, or they could be, it says various documents, where there is, is a question to me, a concern to me. I'm not sure it's enough to justify a search warrant, so I'd be curious to see what that happens. But, but tell says. me that, Mick. I'm curious about that, because if they're top secret, as you say, the most secret compartmented info, why wouldn't that warrant a search, docu- a search warrant? Well, a search warrant is really only uh, warranted if it's an emergency, right? If, 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 if the evidence is that either someone's going to see it who, who shouldn't, or if the evidence is going to disappear or be destroyed or be moved. There's an urgency to a search warrant that goes above just a subpoena. Why do you think President Trump took all those classified documents home? Yeah, I, I've been going over this one in my head. And Donald Trump would not have taken it if, it, if he didn't perceive it to be in his own interest, a benefit to him. It's either that or it's just sheer sort of um, oversight or, or, or inadvertence. Throw a bunch of documents in a box because you think they're, they're yours and they're gone. This is going to be a big part of any subsequent criminal charge, Allison, because they're going to have to show willful intent that the president meant to take the documents, meant to withhold the documents, whatever. Um, you, you don't sort of accidentally break the law in this circumstance. They're going to have to show that he was willful or in, acted intentionally. Well, I mean, the application for the search warrant gave us a little bit more insight. It described the probable cause as, quote, willful retention of national defense information. And that sounds serious. It does. And it sounds like they have in, uh, they have to have evidence to that. They can't just say it right. They have to present evidence to the court show probable cause. Now, it's not the same level of evidence that you have in a trial, and certainly probable cause is much lower uh, than beyond a reasonable doubt, but you can't just sort of willy-nilly say, oh, we've got a hunch that there's documents in that they have to have something. And the fact that they could fill out that affidavit tells me they think that they have something. Nick, how much responsibility do you think falls on the people around Donald Trump, whom he tasked, reportedly, with dealing with the National Archives? People like Mark Meadows back in January and then um, in June, John Solomon and Cash Patel. Um, ultimately, the president is responsible. He just is. That's him. That's Biden. That's that's Obama. That's Bush. The, the, the buck stops at the Oval Office. It absolutely does. That being said, as a former chief of staff, I thought it was my job and my duty um, to make sure that I was making the president as successful as possible. And that includes following the law. And if we were there, if my team had been there, we would have been paying very close attention to the Presidential Records Act, um, to, to the requirements of the National uh, Archives. My gut, Allison, is that things were so hectic and so chaotic, especially after January 6th, that nobody was watching the shop there. People had either left, uh, were trying to leave, were looking for their next job, and it was sort of just, let's get out of town. So again, that goes back to the willful intent versus uh, inadvertence, but you're, you're correct in saying that the FBI thinks they have some intention, some evidence of intention, but it wouldn't surprise me if the place in the final days of that, uh, of that, uh, of that uh, uh, Trump administration were absolutely chaos in the building. But if it were operating normally, the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, would have been in charge of that. Yeah, I, I think you can probably make the case that the uh, Oval Office wasn't operating anywhere near whatever normal is long before January 20th and long before January 6th. You don't get January 6th with a properly functioning West Wing. You don't get 
inadvertent collection of documents uh, with a properly functioning West Wing. You don't get somebody going on TV and saying, oh, the president can wave a magic wand and um, de uh, declassify everything he wants to in a properly functioning West Wing. And that's that's what we're seeing out of the last days of the Trump administration. And by the way, that waging, waving the magic wand, you've basically called nonsense. Um, I know what I know, which is that we didn't have it when I was there. I was not aware of it uh, when I was there. It would surprise me if they did it later. I know that we declassified some documents when I was there. I think we went through this process on declassifying, for example, the transcript of the uh, of the phone call with President Zelensky of Ukraine that, that led to the first impeachment. If th there were a blanket sort of declassification order in place, why would any of us have worried about declassifying the transcript with Ukraine? And when you say that there was a process for declassifying it, like the call with Zelensky, uh, how complicated was that process? Uh, no, it wasn't complicated. It was just real. It was formal. It was there were things to do. There was a paper trail uh, to lay out. Um, and there was just like everything that happens in the White House. Nothing sort of just happens by magic. There are rules that govern how we handle documents. We all knew these rules. The staff secretary is a position in the White House that is responsible for things like preservation of records and would be heavily involved in declassifying uh, any records, as would the White House Counsel's Office. Be curious to know if um, if Pat Cipollone, who I, I think may have testified last week, I, I don't know if, I, if I'm getting that right, if I asked him about the classification of documents, because it would be unheard of, unheard of, I think, to uh, to go through a declassification process and not involve the White House Counsel's Office. Things in the White House are supposed to work in a proper way, um, and it sounds like maybe they didn't again in the late days of the Trump administration. So, Mick, in your experience, how careful was Donald Trump with classified material? Uh, he, was, he, was, he was pretty good. Again, I don't want to go into specifics on, on classified. Trump was an informal guy. There's no question about that. But he knew the severity of these documents. And more importantly, there was a system in place to make sure that regardless of how the president wanted to, to act or, or, or behave, there was a system to protect things. I've said before, yes, I saw the president rip documents in half, not confidential documents, but just draft documents. Not supposed to do that, but there's a way to fix it, which is you just bind the pieces and you tape them together. I used to rip up documents in the private sector all the time. It's not sort of in, uh, an indication of any ill intent. Yes, but, we had, yes, but I mean, sorry to interrupt, but, but I'm talking about the stuff that we all knew. I mean, there were there were moments publicly, like when he shared the, uh, in 2017, he shared the classified Israeli information with the Russians. And the Israelis were apoplectic about that. So how is that not sloppy and dangerous? Well, it, again, I wasn't, I wasn't in the White House at that time. I was over the Office of Management Budget. So my, my experience with that is just through what I saw from the media. How are you supposed to handle it? The staff is supposed to get involved. If the president has confidential materials on his desk at the end of one meeting, which is possible and likely and happens, right? The staff comes in to make sure that all of that stuff is gone and put in the proper place before the next meeting takes place. You can't control the president. The president's gonna do what the president's gonna do, but there are mechanisms inside every properly functioning West Wing to make sure the law is followed, documents are, are, uh, are preserved, and that classified information is treated as classified information. So while I have you, I want to ask you about this, because former Vice President Mike Pence has said publicly that he might be willing to consider speaking to the January 6th committee. Should he yeah. do that? Yeah, I don't see the harm in it. I think Mike knows it, uh, the Vice President, I'm sorry, uh, Vice President Pence knows it to be what, what I believe it to be, which is it's a political thing, right? It is, it is, a, it is a, a committee of, of politicians who don't like Donald Trump trying to make Donald Trump look bad. That's fine. That's politics in Washington, D.C. 
but they still collected some really good information. When you get the Republican attorney general uh, under oath giving testimony, I testified um, to the committee. I can assure you, I think I gave them good and true and accurate information. We should never be afraid of good and true and accurate information. And I know that Mike Pence is not. So I would have no difficulty with him testifying. I think if he has information that he think would shed light on January 6th so that we can take steps to make sure it doesn't happen again, I think that would be a valuable thing for him to do. And how could he not have relevant information on January 6th, given what we saw him endure? I, I think that's fair. He had private conversations with the President of the United States. Um, and I think it may shed some light on the situation. I would not uh, I would not be disappointed to see Mike testify. Nick Mulvaney, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Allison. So is any of this stuff affecting Republican candidates? Something has shifted in the optimism about the Republicans' prospects in November and their chances of winning the Senate. Harry Enten and other very special political minds, who I'm not going to tell you who they are. It's a surprise. Next. The political winds heading into the midterms appear to have shifted a bit. Just four months ago, the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said, quote, obviously the atmosphere could not be better. I think it is an overwhelming likelihood that the wind will be at our back, and that's obviously very important. But now he says this. I think the, the, there's a, probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. Bringing our stellar political minds, we have Democratic strategist Paul Begala. We have former RNC communications director Doug High, as well as CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton. Great to have be spending Friday night with you guys. Thanks for Ooh, being thanks. here. Okay, as a Republican, <laughs> Doug, what's happening? Do you feel the political winds have shifted in terms of at least the Senate and Republicans' chances? Uh, they have, and there are a few reasons for that. One is, um, you know, uh, Joe Biden's approval rating is starting to inch up a little bit. It's still drastically lower than where Obama's was at this point in 2010, but he's inching up. He's had some good news. Two, we've seen what, what's happened in Kansas, which is what's given Democrats some enthusiasm, given Republicans, I think rightfully, some, some pause. And then what Mitch McConnell referenced, which is candidate quality. And what he's saying is some of these candidates don't have a lot of quality. And for Mitch McConnell, I'm reminded of, as you think of so often, Frank Sinatra, who's saying, I've heard this song before. Mitch McConnell heard this song with Christine O'Donnell and Sharon Angle in 2010, then with uh, Richard Murdoch in Indiana and Todd Akin in uh, Missouri. He's very scared that some of these candidates who, who have very winnable seats ultimately may not win because of, they just don't have the quality. Let's talk about that. So here are some of the net favorability ratings of some of the GOP Senate candidates, and they're not, these are the ones that aren't great. <laughs> so let's pull this up. This is Blake Masters down four points, Herschel Walker five points, Mehmet Oz 20 points. This is favorability again. Ron Johnson down eight points. So, Paul, do you think this is about lack of quality candidates or what the Democrats are doing? As Doug said. Well, a little both. Democrats are on a roll. I think Doug uh, honorably gives them credit for that. But midterm elections are always a brake pedal and almost always a brake pedal on the president's party. This is beginning to look like people want to brake pedal on those guys, right? That they're too eccentric. They're too weird. Uh, they're too out of the mainstream. And, and that, that clusters around, well, I'm calling it the tag election for Democrats, Trump, abortion, guns. <clears throat> those are three things where swing voters not, and the Democratic base both agree so it, it excites the base of the Democratic Party and it engages the swing voters because the Democrats are arguing on uh, Trump is out of control. Abortion, you know, gas prices are getting better. Abortion rights are not. 
And that's what Democrats are telling uh, both swing voters and, 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 and the gun issue, which is just such a, a tragedy. So, yeah, it's swung in Democrats' favor, but it's because the very sensible need to hit the brakes may actually redound to the Republicans' detriment this time, which almost never happens. Hmm. Harry, do the numbers reflect this sh- these shifting political winds against the Republicans? I, I, I think they do, and they reflect them in a number of ways, right? We see them in the Senate races where we see Democratic candidates ahead in those states that you just mentioned, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia. Uh, but you also see it nationally. And, you know, there was a very interesting sort of thing that we saw in our last CNN SSRS national poll in which we asked the favorability ratings of Joe Biden. And we also asked it about the Republican Party. And what we saw was, in fact, Joe Biden actually had a higher favorable rating than the Republican Party. But there was a slew of voters who didn't like either one of them, about a fifth (laughs) of the electorate. But I think that Democrats would be more than happy to play on that ground, especially given in those key Senate races that we mentioned, all the Democrats have positive net favorability ratings. So it's not just that the Republicans are disliked, it's that the Democrats are actually pretty well-liked in those states. Hmm. So, Paul, I mean, you, as a Democrat, have to, must be pleased with the spate of legislation yeah. that uh, Joe Biden has signed recently. But are you surprised that his numbers, his approval numbers are not higher? Uh, you know, it, it's going to take time. People haven't had a chance to digest it yet. But this Inflation Reduction Act, you know what the Democrats did that they never do? They branded it. God bless Joe Manchin. He called it the Inflation Reduction Act. Gee, what does that do? Ask my mama. You know, it's like the greatest movie title ever, (laughs) Snakes on a Plane. What's that about? Democrats always call their movies Harold and Maude. What the hell is that? So this is going to, Biden can say, look, I'm lowering your cost of prescription drugs. I'm lowering your cost of health insurance. I'm lowering your cost of energy. I'm lowering the federal deficit. And for once, the Democrats are actually focused and branded. And uh, I I couldn't be happier about that. I was a little astonished, I have to say, but I credit Manchin for that, actually. As a Republican communications Mm -hmm. expert, do you see that that they've changed their branding in a positive way? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. And this is where Republican mistakes are also getting in the way. Republicans had a very potent issue on pushing back on Democrats on defunding the police. But all it takes is a few loudmouth members of Congress to say defund the FBI and you've removed a very potent issue for Democrats or or for Republicans to push back on Democrats. But I'd say one thing. You know, in 2010, at the Republican National Committee, our our, our, our magic number for Barack Obama was 46. We felt if he was at or below that, we'd take back the House. Joe Biden's well below that, and that still is going to have a massive impact on these elections as as we're moving to early voting and and Election Day. It's an albatross still for Democrats. I I would just say, you know, obviously, I think the House is a different ballgame than the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone would still say that Republicans are favored to take back the House. But there have been a number of years in which the House and the Senate have gone in different directions. We mentioned 2010. 2018 was similar. And I would also note also note that historically, the relationship between a president's approval rating and what happens in the Senate isn't as ironclad as you might think, right? In 2018, Republicans actually gained Senate seats. I'd also mention 1982, where, Democrat, where Democrats, in fact, did not gain Senate seats with Ronald Reagan in the White House and approval rating in the low 40s. Yeah. So the Senate and the House are just kind of two different pictures. But I kind of like that. It makes politics a <laughs> they little They always fun. are. Yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you. Really interesting you. to get your take on all of that. And stay tuned for a very important conversation ahead with parents across the country debating how to address the problem of school safety and gun violence in the country and to keep their kids safe in schools. We have a Pulse of the People next.
It's back to school time across the country, and parents are anxious about a lot of things. But top of mind is their kids' safety amid the rash of school shootings. So we gathered a group of parents from across the geographic and political spectrum to talk about their fears and possible solutions for keeping their kids safe. Here now, part two of our Pulse of the People. Show of hands, how many of you are worried or very worried about your own children becoming the victims of school shootings? Okay, so four of you have raised your hand, two haven't. Um, Wesley, you had said that that was one of, that is your top issue. So why do you feel it so acutely? Because I saw it on camera. I mean, because I turn on CNN and I see that a bunch of uh, officers are sitting outside of a school door refusing to go in while an armed gunman is in there killing kids. I'm actually two, three blocks from what a shooting at a church where a guy walked in to a Sunday school class and killed a number of uh, African-Americans as they were studying the Bible. And what I don't understand are these liberals that are living in a fantasy world where evil doesn't exist. Mankind was built on violence. Violence is our history. Violence is our present. Go ahead. I'm so perplexed how that just became a liberal problem. Are you aware of the NRA and the unbelievable pipeline? Let's just be honest. We have a problem in America. It has nothing to do with liberals or Democrats. There are more guns in America than there are people. Vanessa, I 100% agree with you. It isn't a liberal problem or a conservative problem. It is a gun problem, but it's the liberals that are living in this fantasy land as if we're, we have magic and we could just snap fingers and all those guns go away. And, and there's nothing you're going to be able to do with a law that's going to eliminate those guns. The Biden administration just passed, a liberal administration just passed the first gun reform policy in decades. So I really find it disingenuous that the argument you have about fear for your children gets squared in the box of liberals. Wesley, what's your answer? What's your solution? I don't have an answer. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. That's why I've never run for the U.S. Senate. What I do know is that the only way to fight violence is with more violence. And that's why I carry a gun. I have one on me at all times. That's why I take hand-to-hand courses. That's why I go to the gun range two times a month. And that's why I take active shooter courses. Um, To say that we can't magically wave a wand and get rid of the gun violence problem is just a ridiculous notion. Nobody wants to wave a wand. 88% of Americans want background checks. 64% support large capacity magazine bans. 75% support federal gun sale tracking. 80% support requiring concealed carry permits. 84% support uh, preventing gun sales to uh, dangerous people that mental health professionals have deemed dangerous. There are solutions. We just are not willing to give any of them a chance. The real issue under gun control isn't even gun control, it's mental health. You were talking about evil people. Yeah, some of those people were bad, but some of them were just mentally ill and they needed treatment. Hold on, guys. Just let me get to Chris for one second, because Chris, you're a military veteran. Uh, Yeah, I served. I served in the combat zone supporting operations in Afghanistan. I used an M16. It's a weapon of war. We're seeing, uh, you know, things like the AR-15, which are modeled after M-16s. And, you know, I'm a pro-Second Amendment guy. I believe in carrying a gun. Um, When my kids are old enough that I feel it's safe to have one in the house, I'll definitely have a weapon. But the problem is, I think, you know, with the the approach that was first talked about, first blaming this on any political party, uh, that's a failure to start with. And the, the reason why 
is because as soon as you start looking at a party instead of a solution, you lose track. It needs to be an all of the above approach. The assault rifle ban that went into effect reduced shootings significantly. After it expired, they went back up. That's clear proof that legislation has a concrete effect. My daughter was born the day before Sandy Hook. So I literally was in the hospital holding my first child when I realized that elementary schools were no longer safe. Chris, I'm in no way saying that we just get on it, get over it and move on. In fact, I agree with a lot of the steps that were mentioned legislatively. Okay, I'm not saying don't do anything. What I'm saying is when you're doing background checks and you're trying to fix the mental health issue or red flag walls, what I'm saying is that those evil people are still going to find a way. That's all I'm saying. So on top of the legislative issues, we need armed guards. I would be for allowing teachers to carry when they want to carry so that they're not stuck in a room with an armed gunman. All I'm saying is that liberals pretend that guns are going to just disappear and that evil people aren't going to use them. Show of hands, how many of you think that it would help to have teachers be trained and armed? Schools are gun-free zones for the most part. They look, look, no guns here. We're not defending ourselves. And and the reason I sort of, you know, hedged on the should teachers carry, someone who isn't already carrying and, and trained and comfortable should not be sort of, hey, want a gun? That's a horrible, horrible idea. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that most mass killings happen where it's very clear that no one's shooting back. But let me just say that a lot of these schools, from Columbine to Parkland to Uvalde, did have an armed school resource officer. And as we've learned, it's just hard for them to be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. But my point is, is that they, these are not gun-free zones. Evil is everywhere in the world. Every country has evil. There are evil people everywhere. It's not unique. This gun problem is unique to the United States. I want to end on, if we can, a point of, if not unity, at least solutions. Go ahead, Vanessa. Quite honestly, part of the reason why I left the teaching profession was it was impossible to live in New York City on a teacher's salary, fund my classroom the way in which I needed to fund my classroom. We don't get paid in that same way. And that is unfortunate. We have unreal expectations of our teachers and we don't support them. And we should be fully funding our education. We should be partnering with our teachers. They chose an underpaid profession because they love kids. They love creating the next generation of enthusiastic learners. If you don't trust them, fund them and help them in every way, help them teach our kids better. That works best for everybody. Okay, we have a lot to talk about. So up next, our own personal parent panel shares their ideas on what they just heard, how to keep kids safe, and whether armed personnel in schools is a possible solution. We have Paul Begala, Rachel Vinman, and Shan Wu joining us next. We just heard from six parents on their fears about school shootings and their ideas to keep kids safe. So let's discuss all of this. Joining me now is former federal prosecutor Shan Wu, Democratic strategist Paul Begala, and the host of the Suburban Women Problem podcast, Rachel Vindman. Great to have all of you here. Rachel, I can't help but notice your mama necklace (laughs) that you're wearing. How big do these issues of school safety and school shootings loom in your household? It's huge. I mean, 75% of American parents say that this is a concern. 30% say it's a serious concern. They're very concerned about it. 
and I'm probably somewhere in between. I mean, I try not to let it consume my day, but I am, I am very concerned about that. I, you know, it's not just my child; it's my nieces and nephews across the country. It's a huge issue for us. Yeah, I feel the same way. How can you not? How can anybody no, who, who is conscious not feel nervous sending their kids to school right now? So, um, Shan, because AR-15s are still shockingly easy for deranged um, school shooters to get. You know, there's all of these people from parents to teachers to administrators trying to come up with creative solutions. So in Indian River County, Florida, each school now has an AR-15 in that school that personnel can access in an emergency. In Madison County, North Carolina, the sheriff says he will put an AR-15 and ammo into each one of those schools. These are just, I mean, they're trying, you know, they're trying because there's no, people think there's no other solution. What are your thoughts? Well, I think from a legal perspective, I think there's a big problem with a false idolatry of the Second Amendment mm. in this country. That amendment had little or nothing to do with how it's being used today by politicians to garner votes and campaign contributions. All of the common sense ideas of restricting access to guns, perfectly constitutional. And from a legal point of view, it may be fine to give AR-15s to teachers, to schools, from a parental point of view, from my point of view, that's just adding fuel to the fire. I mean, how are they going to store those things safely in the school? I mean, look, we all know that there's an argument out there that a good guy with a gun is the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun, except that there are good guys with guns at schools right now. Right. And as I said to the, to the panel there, they're just not everywhere. They can't be every place at once. And so the bad guy with the AR-15 wins. Um, so, Paul, I wanted to ask you about this because I, I, I want to talk about the Democrat, well, the bipartisan legislation. Right. So the big bipartisan gun legislation, first time in decades, will that stop school shootings? No. no first off, mm-hmm. I thought that one guy was right when he said there's always been evil. Cain slew Abel with a rock, <laughs> but if he had an AR-15, he'd have killed Adam and Eve, too. So we have to get to those weapons. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I think that you see these parents really wrestling with it and grappling with it. Uh, and that, that one dad, Chris from Virginia, was right. I worked for President Clinton. We banned assault weapons. Mm-hmm. And just as important, high-capacity magazines. Because these mass shootings usually all occur in the first 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. So if there's an AR-15 down the hall in the assistant principal's office, that's useless. Right. Um, so there's the, no the high appetite capac- for doing that now. There's no appetite for banning the high-capacity magazines. There's no appetite for banning the, you know, weapons of war. Well, since we can't ban evil... I think we ought to do what we can to keep weapons of war out of minds filled with hate. Uh, and I say this, I, I'm a gun owner. I, I probably own 25 guns. I love hunting, but none of them are assault weapons. None of them are pistols. They're for hunting. And, and they're all locked up and, you know, they're very safe and I'm very responsible. About it. So I'm not anti-gun at all. But uh, so I want a gun out in the field hunting, but I don't want one in this in this Spanish but classroom. I mean, given what you right. know about the political climate, what's the answer? Very tough. I give uh, President Biden and the Republicans who helped him enormous credit. It is very hard to take on the NRA and win, and Joe Biden just did. And I don't think he's gotten enough credit, to tell you the truth. Um, Rachel, I was saying that people are trying to come up with their own creative solutions. Parents are trying to figure out what to do. And there's this, you know, I think really um, kind of heartbreaking video that I'll I'll show you that was online on TikTok of a mom with her five-year-old son and she's sending him trying to prepare him to go back into the classroom and here's how she prepares him this is not a drill everybody go in the corner and be really quiet and still what do you do now show me how you use your bulletproof backpack 
Is anybody in there? What do you do? I say, I'm here. Absolutely not. You don't say a word. I mean, there she's trying. And that's yeah. what we, it's a sign of the times. Mm -hmm. This is what our five-year-olds have to think about now. It's just a complete loss of innocence that the lockdown drills, I have two nieces that are going to kindergarten this year. And just last week it hit me that they're going to go and they're going to have lockdown drills. And it's going to shatter their innocence. There's a before and after. I'm, no, it's I have no words. I understand. Yeah. Me too. And we have no solutions because without legislation and without, uh, you know, another weapons of war ban, it's, again, we're all just coming up with our own solutions to try to keep our kids safe. Meanwhile, Shan, I also want to ask you about what else parents are worried about in the classroom, and that's the culture war stuff that kids are going back into. And just yesterday, a Florida judge blocked Governor DeSantis's stop woke law. I have a problem with the grammar. I mean, that, I mean, the never, <laughs> not, not only the content, but basically what the judge, the problem the judge said, it was unconstitutional because it was impermissibly vague and it violated the First Amendment. Um, and so I'll just play for you. I mean, DeSantis was asked about it today, but he pivoted to his other um, legislation about basically gender and sexuality. So here's what he said. We also believe that parents have a right to send their kids to elementary school without having woke gender ideology shoved down their throat. We do not allow schools to be instructing kids that, hey, you're seven years old, you may have been born a boy, but maybe you're really a girl. They are doing that in places around this country, and it is wrong, and we are not going to stand for it in the state of Florida. We found out last night that they get a lot of their information from TikTok in terms of if this is actually <laughs> happening. I'm not kidding. Right. I mean, that's what is scaring a lot of people, maybe like Governor DeSantis. Legally speaking, is that one going to be challenged? Also, it's, it's known by critics as don't, uh, don't say gay. Uh, I'm sure it'll be challenged. Uh, and it really, uh, they should let educators do the educating. And it goes to deference to the experts. And unfortunately, in this increasingly conservative legal climate, and you certainly see it at the Supreme Court, there is less and less deference given mm -hmm to the experts. They don't like even deferring to the CDC about vaccines. And so that's the problem here. Let the educators decide how to educate and how to protect the children, because that's mm -hmm. what they're trying to do, is making sure that they can be themselves and not feel there's only one way to be. Yeah, teachers are struggling. I mean, there's a teacher shortage, and all yeah. of this is compounding it. I mean, we see schools going to four-day work week, four-day school day, uh, four-day weeks of school. We see larger class sizes. All of this is going to compound the issues for the teachers, for classroom management, another reason why they shouldn't have guns, and make it so much harder. And the quality of education will decrease, and that will be everyone's problem in the end. It won't just be if you're in a school and your school is fine. It's going to be a nationwide issue because of the teacher shortage. And they're just, you know, I mean, what DeSantis said, it was some sort of like right wing, you know, bingo, all the buzzwords, and you just put them together, but they didn't really make sense. But they don't care if it makes sense. We've got to keep talking about it and pushing back, still pushing for the, you know, the high capacity magazine. Even there's no, you know, appetite for it, we got to keep pushing for it and putting it out there. And, and mentioning it because maybe sometime it'll catch on. But you know, uh, quickly, which, which is a greater threat, a book or a gun? 
In Keller, Texas, my beloved Texas, a town not far from Fort Worth, they have taken the Holy Bible, Tony Morrison, and Anne Frank out of the library. Are these the same right-wing knuckleheads who want to put an AR-15 in the, in, the, in, the, in the principal's office, and they don't want the Bible or Tony Morrison or Anne Frank. So I, I, I call me crazy, but mm-hmm. books don't kill people. Guns do. Friends, thank you all very much. Great to have you here Thanks. with me. So coming up, we have an Uber driver who became a hero after stopping to save people from a burning building, and he still managed to get his passenger to the airport on time. That hero is with us live in the studio next. So you're in an Uber on your way to the airport when you see an apartment building on fire with people trapped inside. Naturally, you call 911. But your Uber driver takes a different tact. He pulls over and runs into the building. That Uber driver is named Fritz Sam, and that hero is with me now. Fritz, great to have you here. Thank you. I'm very, it's it's humbling to be here. It's humbling to be in your presence. Appreciate you. Now, Fritz, I appreciate you because you could have kept driving. Why did you pull over and run towards the fire? Um, well... I have a, a habit of 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 doing that. <laughs> Just I, running I, into burning buildings. Well, it's like these situations present themselves, and you're like, do something. And it's like a, I don't know if it's a feeling, I don't know what it is, but it's something comes over you and, you, and you feel like you have to do something, and then you just don't think anymore, and then it's just motion. Okay, well, that's you. I mean, you're built that way, but most people aren't. But when you pulled over and you ran in, what did you find inside? No, so um, we pulled over... I, uh, the first thing we did was to kind of like, again, I wasn't thinking about going inside. So uh, we just tell people to come on out, make sure people made the phone calls, asking, is there anyone inside? A few people came out and there were a few people outside. But I heard someone say, there's still someone inside. In that moment, I held my cell phone, ran inside, saw someone coming down the staircase. He was resisting. That's not resisting. He wanted to come. He wanted to, do, go, he wanted to go downstairs and get something. He had time considering the, the fire was on the second floor. So I just kept him in mind. Went upstairs, saw the other woman. She was also resistant. She was trying to kind of, she was like, I think she was in shock. So you had to convince her to leave? Yeah, a little negotiating. Yeah, I, I told her, if you're not going, I'm not going. And uh, I just told her, whatever, you know, is an AC that caused the fire, whatever. I was like, listen, you're safe. I mean, you know, you know let's, let's just not get hurt. Let's uh, focus on, just on our safety. Yeah. Don't worry about anything else. And you got her out. And got her out. Okay. Yeah. And, and, so, I did, and I went back to get that other guy. I didn't forget the guy down. Okay. So you, so you got <laughs> so, the woman out and you got the guy out. And then you returned to your Uber passenger. Right. And what did you say to her? Oh, you know, so I apologized. You know, she um, oh, she, she, she was awesome. She was awesome. Um, Jemima was her name. Yeah. And uh, uh, an aspiring book author, she's going to do great, y'all. She's going to do great. She, and uh, <laughs> I told her, I said, listen, you know, I said, um, you know, sorry. And, you know, let's get going. I said, do I smell like smoke? And she just chuckled and she was like, are you kidding me? You know, like, you just say some lives. Did you get her to the airport on time? We got there on time. Okay, that's amazing, Fritz. And uh, I have somebody I'd like you to see on camera three, if you don't mind looking over here. Look over to this camera, if you would, Fritz. Because there's Jemima Way right now. She is parachuting in. This is your Uber passenger. Jemima, happy to reunite you with Fritz. Please tell us about that moment where he pulled over and went into the burning building. Hey, friends, it's so good to see you. Same here, same here, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. How you been? You know, 
Honestly, Chris, you were such a hero. Um, you you reacted so quickly, and I was so impressed by how you didn't even hesitate. You just ran right in, and ever since then, I've just been getting messages from stuff on what a hero you are and how you have given so many people hope. I think these are really difficult times, and you just really reminded everyone that you just pierced through all of that noise and reminded everyone that there are good people out there. And I hope that your kids know that your dad is a hero. Yeah. Oh, that is so nice. Um, because first, uh, the even the yeah, CEO of Uber said that you are a hero. And your own daughters, what did they say? Well, one calls me Super Cat, and the other one, uh, uh, Skylar, called me Super Cat. But we have kittens, so you know she had to combine them too. Okay. And uh, uh, Kaylee Rose, you know she's 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 proud. You know I, I'm kind of just you know I'm cherishing. The moment because I see that they're they're joyful. Yes. So I, I appreciate it. And I, and, and I always don't say to people who um who were temporarily displaced, you know, hang there, guys. I know it's tough. I'm just glad you guys are okay. God bless you, and everything's gonna be okay. You're gonna be back home soon. That is beautiful. Well, Fritz Sam, uh, you do restore everyone's faith in humanity. Thanks so much for no, being here. Mama, thank you so much for being here. So glad you made your uh, flight on time. Uh, that was great. Great to see both of you. Thanks so much for watching, everyone. I've had a wonderful time with you this whole week on CNN Tonight. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.